G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Could we begin though just with a cautionary tale, actually from the, the movie industry. Um, plenty of cautionary tales from the movie industry, aren't there? Goodness. Uh, but uh, yeah, a cautionary tale from the, the movie industry, just to illustrate our tendency to react and fight back and in, instead of learning um, and listening. Uh, Citizen Kane, as I'm sure you're well aware, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those movies, well, it's not one of those movies, it's kind of the movie that's regarded as the greatest film of all time. You know, you take your pick of, you know, best of cinema lists from wherever you like and it's either in the top position Citizen Kane or it's always sort of vying for it and they have to come up with an explanation as to why it's not um, in the top position. Anyway Orson Welles, he was the man who created it, Uh, he was the lead actor in it, he um, directed it and the Hollywood studio RKO, they were the ones who produced it and and, uh, promoted it, released it and all of the rest. That was way back in 1941. Now Citizen Kane Um, Do you remember the actual story? Um, If if you haven't seen it, it is so worth going and watching. It is a really great film. Um, The movie traces the life of um, Charles Foster Kane, hence the name of the film, no relation, who grew up very poor, uh, but whose family hit it rich uh, in gold, I think it was. And so as Kane became an adult and then went into journalism, he had the resources to buy out an entire newspaper um, and, and really set its direction and, and, and go where he wanted it to, which was in the, he steered it toward tabloid articles, you know, sort of fluff and gossip and, and so forth. So Kane, very quickly, because it was what the people liked, became the sweetheart of the masses. Everyone loved his paper and loved Kane and um, he became among the most influential man of the country. I think he married the president's niece or something like that. And, uh, and then he, uh, he used his resources to, to um, get behind his campaign to become governor. He builds a castle on a mountaintop with iron gates and the whole thing calls it Xanadu. It's quite ridiculous. Uh, but tragically, the whole thing falls apart as the man himself implodes. So rich and full and wealthy, but the man himself Implodes. So I think it. I think it is a deeply tragic film um, about the hollowness of very full-looking lives. It's a film about emptiness and vanity, um, but it's just a story. Unfortunately for Orson Welles and for the RKO studio, uh, there was in 1941 a very real and very rich newspaper man who didn't feel that it was just a story and who felt that maybe that upcoming movie that he got wind of was about him, which was partly true, actually. Um, Anyway, let me read this little bit to you. William Randolph Hearst, the infamous media magnate, William Randolph Hearst decided that Citizen Kane was based on his life, and offensively so. Hearst then began an all-consuming campaign to destroy one of the greatest films of all time. The lengths that Hearst went to were absurd. He sent his most influential gossip columnist, Luella Parsons, that's a great name for a gossip columnist, isn't it? Luella Parsons, 
to the studio to demand a screening. And based on her feedback, he decided he would do everything in his power to block it from being made public. He issued a directive that none of his newspapers were to make mention of any RKO film, period. Hearst's papers, because he was a newspaper man, remember, began exploring negative stories about Wells and his private life. Hearst's gossip columnist threatened to do the same to each of the RKO board members. Hearst also made threats to the movie industry as a way of turning other studio heads against the picture. An $800,000 offer was made for the rights to the film that it might be burned and destroyed. This was 1941, $800,000. Most theatre chains were threatened into refusing to show it. No ads for it were allowed in any Hearst-owned properties. Hearst sympathisers began reporting rumours about Wells to various authorities, and in 1941, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI opened a file on Orson Wells. Folks, here's the connection to today's passage in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is about two groups of people, with Jesus standing right in the middle of them. And on the one hand, there are those who lead very full very respectable, very recognisable, very public lives. Yes, in that context, also very spiritual lives. They were spiritual giants in their day, uh, by all appearances. The religious experts, we'll meet them in just a moment. But on the other hand, I'm just going to use the word that the passage uses, there were the sinners. Why would anyone want to be caught dead having dinner at their place? That kind of a group. But, and this is crucial, it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls on us to prove that our spiritual lives are not like theirs. And I don't mean the sinners, I mean the first group. Not like the first group, hollow and shallow and empty and defensive. Oh, with an appearance of fullness and respectability, the William Randolph Firsts of the church world, church-going and law-keeping, and proper proof that your spiritual life amounts to more than that. That's what I take to be some of the thrust of Luke chapter 5 for us as its readers today. And I'll give you a hint. The answer is not, well, if you find yourself one of that group, then just go and join the other group. Sin a little, live a little. No, that's not the answer, friends. Um, But where do we look for proof of a personal, spiritual uh, life of substance, that really matters, that is real in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Where do we look for proof in our own lives that that's really what's going on beneath the surface? Are we willing to learn and listen? Or like William Randolph Hearst, like the characters in Luke chapter 5, are we going to get our back up and fight back and react? Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father God in heaven, we ask, would you please speak to us now by your spirit, And through your word, we pray that our life together in Christ may be enriched and strengthened and nurtured. May we we be challenged where we need to be, reformed where our spiritual life ought to be, conformed to the character and pattern of our Lord Jesus, wherever we may be in your strength. Please carry on your transformative renewing, refreshing work in us this morning, we ask. 
God, we ask for change in real ways, please. Amen. Uh, now, since, uh, since we're the ones here at church this morning, and since you've braved that weather to come here, um, we're the ones who have actually made it. I reckon it pays to see ourselves in this passage in Luke chapter 5, in the shoes of the religious people. Um, I think very often we know that when Jesus has an encounter with religious types, they're usually the baddies in the passage, and so we identify with the other ones. But can I ask us to instead identify with the religious types for today? Um, and perhaps you think that's um, fair of you or perhaps it's not, I don't know. Let's just try it on for size though. Um, but Luke chapter 5, verse 39, if we're going to do that, if we're willing to see ourselves as the religious types in the passage today, Luke chapter 5, verse 39, means we have to consider for ourselves this terrifying prediction from the lips of Jesus here. The lips of Jesus to these upright, these together, these religious people who he already knows won't want a bar of him. Luke chapter 5 verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. I think they're frightening words, aren't they? For people who claim, who experience a spiritual life who, in some respects, you'd describe as, as religious. Can you hear Christ's pessimism? His negative prediction, their, their resistance to change as Jesus sees it. Jesus talking about people who have become so accustomed and so stuck in their ways that they would prefer old and dead and lifeless, useless but comfortable traditions rather than develop a taste for something new, the new that he is bringing, the real life that alive and real spiritual life that he's offering these people. Why? Because the life that he calls them to, maybe it's going to hurt them too much, maybe it's going to challenge them too much. It's going to challenge them too deeply, threaten to upset the apple cart of their comfortable religious ways. Friends, what are they so scared of? What is the spiritual life that Jesus builds for them in this passage that seems so threatening and that draws such a defensive response from them. I think we need to see it in three life-changing realities here in Luke chapter 5. And the first comes out of verse 17. Could we take a look there together? We'll take it up from verse 17. And the first aspect of this a real spiritual life is, is simply this. It's the realisation that this Son of Man, this Jesus, he confronts the sickness that we cannot see and that we would rather not admit to. Jesus confronts the terrible sickness of sin in our world, and he's got the equipment to bring forgiveness. From verse 17, please read along with me in the text there. Verse 17, one day as he was teaching, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him, for Jesus, to heal the sick. And if you've been following along in our series in Luke's Gospel, uh, you'll know that this is, um, well, this is really the first big encounter that we've seen with these uh, types of people, and it's the first time that we've seen such a concentration of religious weight gathered around Jesus. This is serious. They're from all over, aren't they? And I take it two things from this. Number one, we've got to see this as a test. 
a test for Jesus. Because if you've got the religious heavyweights gathered around, attentive, paying attention finally, and they're from all around the whole uh, area of God's people, it's a test. Does Jesus meet their approval? I mean, they're the experts. They're the establishment. Do they, does he get their tick? That's the first thing I think we, we have to come into this passage with. And secondly, we've got to imagine that they had front row seats. They were, what does verse 17 say? They were sitting there, verse 17. And it sure sounds like standing room only for everyone else, doesn't it? Keep reading verse 18. Some men carrying a paralytic on a mat... Uh, were carrying a car- came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. <laughs> now that sounds implausible. It sounds unlikely. That, you know, ripping the roof tiles apart and lowering this bloke in through... But they did it. These courageous... Loving uh, men, why do I say loving? Well, because what other hope is their mate got? You know, everyone else is gathering around this Jesus. The power of the Lord seems to be with him um, to heal people and, and their mate can't even get there under his own steam. He's stuck on a mat and this healer comes to town healing everyone else. What do they do? They love their mate. And so they get up on the roof and I I can't imagine the social shame of it, tearing off the tiles and lowering him down there. This might be his one chance in life to live a full life again. And I wonder, have you ever hoped, have you ever cried out to the Lord? Have you ever longed either for your body or the body of someone very dear to you to just have a normal body again, one that works the same way that everyone else's seems to. When they couldn't find any way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, verse 20, he said, friend, let's see if we can't make your legs work again. Friend, you've lived like this long enough. That's what they wanted, isn't it? Sure what they expected. No. Jesus, as I said, he confronts the sickness that no one wanted to talk about back then and I suspect no one still wants to talk about today, do they? Do we? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, verse 20, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I think it's worth asking, brothers and sisters, why do we want Jesus in our lives? Um, it's easy to, I, th- I think it's easy to look at this, uh, this bloke and to look at his friends 
And uh, for all that we admire of them, I, I think to say that, well, they're kind of shallow, aren't they? They have the Lord of heaven and earth in their midst and they, all they want is a healing. We have sympathy for them, of course, but he just wanted a healing when he had Jesus in front. Digging through the roof, lowering the bloke down on the mat, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven? Excuse me, that's not why I came. Why do we want Jesus in our lives? Could it be that we want Jesus in our lives very often, very much of the time, for no more noble reasons than they? Because as a Christian, well, I don't know, it's a respectable kind of way to be among some of the circles that I move in at least. It's because as a Christian, well, it makes my family life easier. Because as a Christian, well, she'll go out with me if I'm a Christian. She made that very clear from the start. Folks, do you see, do you see what the Son of Man says? You need to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And if I'm going to do one thing in your life, Jesus is saying, it isn't bless your business, it's not fix your family, bang, friend, your sins are forgiven. Do we want that? Do we have a thirst for that? Do we realise that we need that more than anything else in all of the world? More than you need a body that works the same as everybody else's body works. Take it from me, the Son of Man is saying. The very forgiveness of God, it's yours through me. It's why I'm here. Now, it's very interesting. Just uh, watch this, because what comes next in the text? See, the the son came to confront sin, to fix sin, to forgive sin. That's step number one. So where should they expect to find this son of man? The son came to forgive sinners... So where should they expect to find this son? (laughs) With actual sinners, shock horror. Uh, Which seems a revolutionary thought for most religious people in our world, even today, and it certainly did for them back then, didn't it? Let's have a look together at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, you'll remember, of course, uh, most of us, tax collectors, um, even Jewish ones, especially Jewish ones, actually, they were low lives, right? Okay, so in that day, the um, ATO didn't have quite the reputation that it does today. Uh, the tax collectors, they were low lives. That, that was the reputation, colluding with the enemy, all right? Profiting off your own people, and uh, being in cahoots with Rome, sucking up to the Roman overlord. They were scum, right? So you kind of got the paralytic. Who knows whether he was a sinner? Well, probably. I mean, we all are, aren't we? So, yeah, but, but this tax collector, what a piece of work. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Verse 28, and Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, do we do well at at representing this principle in our lives? 
Uh, what would it even look like in our lives? I mean, yes, we say that we believe that Jesus came to save sinners and that means he came to save me and that is a precious thing because I am a sinner. Hallelujah. Yet we agree on that. But what about the next step? That if the Son of Man came to save sinners, then where should you expect to find the Son of Man? Um, Daryl Bock, um, you know, you've heard me quote him before, this expert on Luke. He, he reckons there's an implication here that we cannot avoid as churches. He says this, he says, Jesus' example teaches the church community that they need to seek and associate with the outcast as part of their mission. Even though there might be some who would frown on such personal relationships. He summarises it like this. He says, mission requires more than casual contact. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? And brothers and sisters, this is one of the things that's troubled me most this week in a way, because I'm not sure that I've got it figured out exactly what this should look like in my life. Have you? This year, one of the things that we're working at as a church is is gradually trying to, uh, you know, as a congregation, figure out our outreach more and explore, you know, what are the areas that we need to be trained in better, uh, in in turning conversations to the Lord Jesus and and, 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 and topical um, uh, things that come up in the rest of life. How do we represent Christ as his ambassadors wherever we go? How can we do better in outreach? What are the things that trip us up? But here's another dimension on it entirely, isn't it? Who do I actually spend my time with? Am I willing to spend time with people who need my message spiritually more than I need their friendship? And and yes, of course, um, we, we need to find a balance in terms of, you know, biblical wisdom about the company that I keep and the influence that the company that I keep has on my character and my decisions and so forth. But I suspect, brothers and sisters, am I not right to say that most of us are not at that end of the spectrum in terms of the amount of time that we spend with the outcasts and the sinners? Am I friends with anyone, and I mean friends, with anyone who would make you wonder, how could he even eat with that person? Jesus' example teaches the church community that they need to seek and associate with the outcasts as part of their mission, even though there might be some who would frown on such personal relationships. Mission requires more than casual contact. And just as Bert was going through those slides, it made me think that that may be a lesson that we could learn well by looking at our brothers and sisters in the subcontinent. Um, Look, the last section that we have in front of us here in in Luke chapter 5, I think in a way, it might be the most important of all for our congregation, for us. Because yes, Jesus came to confront sin and so yes, of course, we're going to find him amongst sinners, secondly. Um, But this one, this last aspect in this uh, little exchange that Jesus has there, it protects us from being merely driven by guilt or merely driven to outreach in a way that treats other human beings as just projects, those that, that sinner project that I have, that, I gosh, I need to go and befriend, like some pyramid kind of a scheme. I think this last section protects us against that kind of uh, rank thing there, because this last section, it asks us the question of our hearts, isn't the salvation of sinners still the thing that brings you joy in life, to see God working in that way. 
Isn't it the thing that puts a smile on your face? Isn't saved sinners still the very heartbeat of happiness and celebration in your spiritual life? Jesus gets asked about fasting from verse 33 and onwards. Uh, Fasting, this symbol of of kind of grief and crying out to the Lord and desperation. And Jesus is saying, this is no season for fasting. The Son of Man is here for the forgiveness of sins. How about joy and celebration? Verse 33, then they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. And I think that's talking about the time of Jesus' death and his time in the tomb before his resurrection. And then to these Religious folks, he tells them this parable, verse 36. He told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old and no one pours new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins and no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For he says, the old is better. And you Pharisees, you can go on living in the past, you know, grumpy that God would want to forgive the sin of actual sinners, miffed at the call to come and join him in reaching actual sinners in friendship and dining at Levi's house. You can live with your taste for the old ways if you want. The old is better. Or we can get on and celebrate the new and live for the new and love the new, the good news that has come in the Lord Jesus. Friend, your sins are forgiven. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And what a healing this doctor gives. Look, brothers and sisters, isn't it true within all of us? There is a taste for, a tendency toward, in some ways a preference for what is easy, what is familiar, what we know, the things that feel safe and and, uh, people that are like us and, uh, you know, the things that we naturally and easily kind of slide into, the things that don't demand terribly much of us. But folks, we have something so wonderful for the world around us. That the sinners in Jesus' day, the sinners in Jesus' day, they knew that they needed. Levi saw it. And don't we find it inspiring, brothers and sisters, as we look on at this passage? I don't know, I read through this passage. I find it inspiring as I look on at Jesus here. And he's picking a fight, isn't he? He's picking a fight with the Pharisees. He knew it would get a rise out of them. Picking a fight with them to see a man saved from sin and not just from sickness. I find it inspiring to look on at Levi, this man who invited everyone he knew around to his house to have an encounter with Jesus. Such was his enthusiasm and delight at the forgiveness of sin that he had received from the Lord. And of course, looking ahead in Luke's Gospel, I find it inspiring to to then listen to that whole pattern of life as we approach the cross over the couple of Sundays coming. Father, forgive them for they know, know not what they do. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So may Christ's heart 
for the forgiveness of actual sinners move our feet for the forgiveness of more sinners like us? Um, could we close with just a little, um, just this little story? It's a story, I think it's true. Parts of it are definitely true. I think it's true. It comes from a woman named Tara Brack, who's not a Christian at all. She's a Buddhist, actually. Uh, but she tells a story, and it's right on point for us as we consider, are we stuck in our ways, or will we reach out with the freedom that Christ has given us in the gospel of forgiveness? She tells this story. She, te- she tells it like this. Mohini, Mohini was a regal white tiger, Look at that. Is that actually Mohini hands or just a white? Actually, there you go. There you go. Mohini. There you go. No longer living, but you'll get to that. Anyway, okay. Mohini was a regal white tiger who lived for many years at the Washington DC National Zoo. For most of those years, her home was in the old lion house, a typical 12 by 12 foot cage with iron bars and a cement floor. Mohini spent her days pacing restlessly back and forth in her cramped quarters. Eventually, the biologists and staff worked together to create a natural habitat for her, covering several acres. It had hills, trees, a pond, a variety of vegetation. With excitement and anticipation, they released Mohini into her new and expansive environment. But it was too late. The tiger immediately sought refuge in a corner of the compound where she lived for the remainder of her life. Mohini paced and paced in that corner until an area 12 by 12 feet was worn bare of grass. And then Tara Brack makes this closing comment. She says, perhaps the biggest tragedy in our lives is that freedom is possible, yet we can pass our years trapped in the same old patterns. Let's pray together. Yes, our Father in heaven, we confess, we we know what it is to tread the same old path in our Christian lives. We confess that we know what it is to keep going the same old way, not because it's the best way or brings the most glory to Jesus or reflects the lavish forgiveness and grace that we've received, But simply this, it's what we're used to. We're kind of comfortable and safe and it feels manageable. God, would you release us, please, into the wide open space of what Christ calls us to? A life that knows that forgiveness is for sinners like us and so bends our lives to set forgiveness in Christ before other sinners like us. Father, teach us your ways, please, and your character. Lift our eyes and our hearts to to delight in Jesus. May we be inspired to new heights in our spiritual walk with you, not, not just by guilt, but by gratitude. And not just in fear, but in faith. And, and certainly not in self-serving, but in a celebration of the Saviour that we've found in Christ. And God, we specifically pray for the coming few Sundays with Easter particularly in our mind. And Father, we pray for those whose presence we really crave alongside us here at church on that weekend. God, may we start there, Father, with an an invitation to them. 
that by your grace may be well received, that by your spirit leads to a a saving encounter with Jesus in the gospel this Easter. We ask it boldly, but knowing that you are our sovereign saving God. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.